Welcome to the War Room. Ryan here, as always. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you like this show, could you share it with a friend, family, coworker, whoever that you might think enjoys this podcast today? We'd really appreciate it. Stephen, welcome to the War Room. Hey, thanks. Thanks a lot for having me. Now, the last time I had on a uh, a Navy SEAL, he he, he joked that. This war room had a little bit of a different feel than the ones that he was used to. So, yes, we will not be planning war today in case there was any confusion <laughs> in the invite. No, I I, I did my due diligence. I can see that you, you cover a really wide swath of targets with a lot of different people. So it's, yeah, yeah well, looking forward to it. Well, cool. Well, okay, so um, the new book is Life on the X, a Navy SEAL's guide to meeting any challenge with courage, confidence, and readiness. Okay, so first, why the book now? Yeah, so as I was, if I go back to when I was looking at leaving the military, and I was like, what am I going to do? You know, like, it kind of was a couple years out from retirement, and I said, well, I don't want to ride a train to the city every day. I don't want to do this. What is it? If I look at broad strokes, what is it about my career that I thought was, you know, not only most meaningful, but most impactful and also something that I could kind of distill and pass on? Because I looked at like I enjoyed my time in combat. I enjoyed training for combat, going overseas on deployments. I liked all that. But truthfully, my biggest contribution, I think, to the military, to the Navy were the people that I trained, trained U.S. foreign partner special operations forces. And the last program that I was in involved with the last thing I did in the Navy before I retired in 2019 was to create a program for the Navy called Warrior Toughness and was simply a chaplain, a psychologist myself kind of locked into a room and told by our Admiral, hey, we need to figure out how to get our sailors in the fleet tougher. You know, we may be at war with the Chinese, with the Russians before too long or another near peer competitor. Our sailors got to be tougher. They got to embody more of that warfighter mindset than they have uh, over the last you know, couple decades. And so we created a program. We figured out what toughness was, and we created a program starting with boot camp. And so when I was done with that, I looked at it and I said, well, what are, what are all these things based on the things that I learned in the SEAL teams, how to plan, prepare, and execute for combat, these other things that I learned about performance psychology, mindfulness training, uh, Greek and Roman philosophy, how can I take that and translate that into – a program, uh, content that everybody can use in their day-to-day lives. What is toughness? And can you make so someone we, tough? Right. So we had to, that was the first thing. And I tell the story, you know, before this ever came about, there was the new, what they call the chief of naval operations. He's the most senior admiral in the U.S. Navy, in charge of the Navy. And he had had these initiatives that he was coming out, and one of them was toughness. And so I'm sitting there and we have an all hands call, which is essentially like when you have the most people in in a Navy command, the the senior leader comes and they'll give their, their presentation or whatever they want to talk about. And they'll open up the questions. And so my, my genius self decides to stand up and ask, well, sir, what is toughness exactly? How do we measure it? And how do we in fact create it and build it in people? And so little did I know I'd actually be tasked with trying to figure those very things out. And so when it came to toughness, we had a, we identified it in three key areas. First was you have to be able to take a hit, take a punch, and keep on going. And so that can literally mean the very specific tactical example of your, your ship is fire, intense combat. All right, you're injured. Your friends are maybe uh, wounded, killed in front of you. You got to get back up into the fight. 
you got to do it. You got to save the ship. You got to fight back. Okay, but it also extends to mean, okay, what happens if I didn't receive that promotion that I felt I deserved, that I expected? What happens if I suffered a loss in a relationship, suffered a loss of a loved one? I still have to get back up and move forward. The second part of that definition is perform under pressure. You know, it's one thing to have skills, to have tactical skills. It's one thing to have knowledge in anything you do, but can you execute when things go sideways? Can you execute when the pressure's on, when the stakes are high? And so you have to be able to do that. You have to be able to bring your skills and deliver that in the clutch. Three, the day in, day out grind, as we like to say. So in the SEAL teams for special operations, that's going on high, uh, you know, high tempo deployments where you're going out on multiple raids in different locations every night. And, and the type of toll, the fatigue that sets in from that, the mental, the physical fatigue that sets in from that, but also the sailor that has to look at a radar sc- screen in the middle of the ocean and nine times out of 10, 99% of the time, nothing happens. But if it does and he's tuned out, he or she is tuned out and they're not paying attention to ships collide and people die. So it's about being staying focused and locked on and engaged no matter what kind of either intensity or type of monotony you have to deal with. When you look at highly successful people or people who can do some of the things that you mentioned there, one of the traits I've been toying with is the idea of, you know, I don't know if extreme discipline is the right term or uh, overt discipline or however you'd phrase it, but but being able to disorder your life in which, you know, the calendar from nine to 10, you have nothing going on, but then you put something on the calendar and then you execute it. And it seems that people who can master that kind of skill, it doesn't mean that they're going to be the next Bill Gates or whatever, but they can get ahead of, you know, in life or business or whatever. I'm curious, is that part of what the SEALs was training you guys to do in boot camp? And do you think that is part of what continues you to keep going, perform under pressure and grind? Is that ability to stay disciplined and keep the next task in front of you? Well, it's it's being thoughtful, it's but it's being deliberate. And of course, it's being it's being disciplined. It's all of those things, you know. Things we do in the military, and it's not just specific to SEALs or special operations, but the military at large is about creating battle rhythms, right? You want a sense of predictability to your schedule, to your workflow, because that's less that you have to think about. And one of the things that I preach kind of in, in along those lines is being brilliant at the basics, right? So often, you know, whether it's the business world, maybe it's our personal life. We're always looking for something. We're looking for the shortcut. We're off there looking at that next piece of technology, that next shiny object. And while those things can be helpful, I think we are much better served when we step back and we look at, okay, what are the fundamental aspects and elements of my craft, of what I'm trying to do? Let me shore that up. Let me gain mastery on those very basic things before I start worrying about the other things, because that's where really a lot of our performance goes. Because the better we sew up those basics, the less things that we have to think about. So when we are in front of something, we are doing a presentation or a pitch in front of the C-suite, in front of a, you know, an important client or customer, we're focused and engaged. We're like, all right, our technology is taken care of. The logistics have taken care of. I've done my review. I've done my study of the industry, of this particular um, individual's needs or concerns. So I feel confident. I've done those very basic things. So now I can be completely you know, focused, present, and engaged with that person, with that team in that situation. And I think in the military, 
we always do that. And one of the most uncomfortable things when you deploy somewhere, you know, you've been riding on a cargo plane, you touch down Iraq or Afghanistan, it's the middle of the night, you're groggy, you're tired. You know, you can't just move right into where you want to move into because the people you're rotating, they may still be there. Bottom line is you're, you just want a sense of normalcy and predictability to your schedule. You want to know where the chow hall is. You want to get your stuff set up to sleep. You want to know when your meetings are. You just want to have a routine down. And we're comfortable when we have a level of routine. So wherever we can build that rhythm, those routines into our schedule the better it's going to be, right? We stack, you know, I like to, what I personally do, I like to stack a lot of my most difficult things early in the day when I seem to have most of my focus, most of my energy before I eat for the day. And then the afternoon are the things that don't require the same amount of focus. And so that's just kind of what I like to do. So I try to be as regimented as possible, but it doesn't mean that I'm always bound. I still have to always accept that there's going to be a level of flexibility and adaptability that needs to take place. You said the term brilliant at the basics, and it reminds me of a story. I don't remember who the reporter was, but they finally got to go see the Jordan Bulls. And this is in the second three-peat era. And he, he walks into the gym, and they're doing practice before the game or the day, the day before the game or whatever. And he sees Jordan, and he sees Pippen, and they're doing chest and bounce passes. And he was blown away that Michael Jordan, who is at this time ascending to be the greatest of all time, and Scottie Pippen, a top 50 player, are still doing chest and bounce passes in, in practice. And I do think that that is something that we, as people in society, we, we get okay at the basics and then we forget and we kind of move on and we, we've kind of, we, didn't, we never really mastered it or became brilliant, as you say. And then we don't go back and sharpen those tools. They become kind of dull on us. Yeah. And so one of the things is, you, you know, you see when you watch movies about Navy SEALs or any other special operations, right? You just see the sexy stuff. You see him fast roping out of a helicopter or you see him going in, blowing through a door and clearing a structure, whatever that is. But what you don't see is all the hours and hours before you even leave the base, right? It's like, so we go out in Iraq sometimes, upwards of 15 trucks to include the partner force if we were working with them, the Iraqi Special Operations Forces. It takes a heck of a lot of practice just to make sure that you've locked down the logistics. Okay, radio checks. You know, we've got our stuff to help us with all of our electronics that can interfere with communications. We need to make sure that we have the right people in the right vehicles. We need to make sure that we have the good radio checks for all the vehicles. We're on the good, the right frequencies, all that thing. And we also have to have the plan. We go on target. We have wounded. We have detainees. How are we going to make sure that we have that sm- uh, flowing very smoothly? It's these little things that can make a huge difference. Now, in addition to that, whenever we get back from a, a deployment, right, you know, by the time you, you do an 18-month pre-deployment cycle and then you deploy for typically six months, at least that was my experience, and by the time you're midway through that deployment or towards the end of the deployment, you're, you're a well-oiled machine. You're moving at a very efficient, high rate of speed. If you're doing, uh, you know, assault, urban, urban combat and close-quarter combat, you, you can read off, uh, off each other, like, brilliantly. Now, when you get back, you know, you slow things down to a crawl again. Maybe you get some new team members. You always break it back down to the basics. You're in there before you even go live. You have paint guns or you're just walkthroughs without even shooting anything. You do that over and over again. And then you start to build, build, build. You always master the basics. You know, when it comes to tactics on the battlefield, special operations forces are good. They can defeat the enemy 
with those tactics, not because they're some magical ninja tactic, but because they are better and quicker at reading the situation and executing a very basic tactic effectively, efficiently, and very quickly. Is slow smooth and is smooth fast? It is. And, and, and I think really what that comes down to for, for people that may not be familiar with that, right? We have that expression that we use in the SEAL teams, slow is smooth, smooth is fast. Because a lot of times, you know, one of the things that we like to do is we like to do when we're doing like tactical shooting, we do it for training, we do it for fun. We'll do what we call man-on-man drills where, you know, I'll be sitting in front of, let's say, a rack of head plates, metal steel targets, and next to me will be my buddy. And the final steel target, you shoot one, and whatever one falls first, the one on top, obviously, is the loser. And so it goes by, like, as soon as you just say somebody says go, you race each other. You come from the holster, and you try to shoot all those things down. Now, the, the, the more spastic or herky-jerky you are, the more likely you're going to bobble your draw or you're going to yank the trigger. And so the thing is you train to be very smooth and machine-like in your consistent execution of everything you do because with that smoothness, with that efficiency, the speed will come. But it's got to be robotic, almost like machine-like in some of those sequences and procedures. Okay. And so you you talked about training and at the end of your time and the book about training – What makes a good trainer? You know, a good trainer has to realize that people process instructions in a very different way. You have to set aside your own biases for how you uptake information, how you take information, absorb it, process it, and then execute it. And so you really have to be, and I made this mistake early on. I was like, when I was getting trained, the most stressful training we do is close quarter combat, right? When you go and you clear rooms, it's very dangerous, but this real stress comes from the judgment of the people above you looking down on you clear these rooms at a very high rate of speed. And if you make mistakes, you get called out in front of everybody and you look stupid or you're embarrassed. And so I was always getting yelled at like we all were, right? It's just like you're getting yelled at and turn the stress on. And so that's what I did. But what I realized is that you have to regulate that stress, right? Because not everybody, if somebody's in a meltdown phase and you keep applying more and more stress, you're not doing them any favors, right? They're at a point, like if it's not a selection process, if you're trying to get them to perform better, you need to stop and you need to try a different approach. And that's what we did. When we created the Warrior Toughness Program, we're much more deliberate about all right, we recognize that tactical training is lost or, or value of, of an experience is lost when the stress becomes so high that they are now in that red zone, that fight, flight, or freeze. And so what we do now is what I recognize is that I need to stop. I need to take a breath. I need to separate maybe the, the stress from the situation, go over, review the procedures and sequences, calm down, and then you can, once we've got that and we can take another couple of reps and sets, then we can turn the heat and the stress back up. And so it's really about being able to be very mindfully present and focused and reading the people and really understanding why is it they're not getting it. Maybe they need to get yelled at because they're not taking it seriously enough. Or maybe we need to dial that stress input down a little bit, let them catch their breath, you know, balance themselves, and then uh, apply the throttle some more. Yeah, yeah, and I do wonder about um, you know, training programs and stuff I've been a part of, which is going back to the, the brilliant at the basics. Sometimes it's, it feels as if you're trying to 
learn 30 things and you haven't even mastered thing one or thing two, or you're not even good at it really. And you get to thing seven, you're like, I can't remember how to do thing one and thing two. And so it seems that there's a lot of things that, 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 that make training. We want people to be able to achieve a certain level of success or, or mastery. Uh, I'm not sure about the 10,000 hour thing, but a lot faster than they're probably capable of doing. And that's right. That's right. You know, I, you go through some, somebody wants to train you something or, or train you on something, no matter what it is. You know, if you, for me, I, I like, I would go to like ski camps, learn how to be better at skiing just for fun. Right. And you can only focus on one or two things each time. Now, as you start to get comfortable, like if you're in a training course, right, you're like, okay, I'm not going to get the 10,000 hours in these things, but let me get to at least where I understand it. And let me learn some more things that I haven't mastered but at least I, I know it enough. I have enough tools that then I can kind of write that down. And on my own, I can start to kind of start the mastery process. So I think that's if you're, if you're providing training to someone, you know, and you also you're providing it to a group of people, you know, at a certain point, you have to address the lion's share of where the, the students are. You can't just say, hey, I'm only going to teach the lowest level. All right. Sometimes you got to teach to kind of where most people are at. And then figure out how you're going to deal with people that aren't quite catching on. But in certain points, when you have compressed training, it's like, all right, here's, let me throw all this stuff at you. Make sure you understand it. And then you're going to have to pursue mastery on that uh, after we are finished with this couple of week training. So how does this work out when you don't have a trainer, though? Everyday life, family, uh, maybe you're a solopreneur, you're a podcast host like me. You know, how does, how do you take that type of mentality and understand whether you're, you're making progress, you're not making progress, you're pushing yourself hard enough or not? Well, you know, it really depends on what you're doing. I mean, I think first thing, we shouldn't be doing anything, right? I'm a solopreneur too, for the most part. I work with, I have a team of people that I work with, but for the most part, you know, day to day, it's me. And that said, we don't, we shouldn't, and we don't have to do things on our own, right? I always say, no matter what you're doing, you should seek, at the very least, you should seek a mentoring relationship. You should have resources. You should have communities that you can turn to. And you need to have maybe some instruction to kind of sharpen your, your focus in your game. But before you do anything, and this is so common sense, like I, I you know, I, I hate even saying it, but it's the absolute truth, is you have to be crystal clear. You have to have absolute clarity on what your objective is. Not only your overarching objective, but you have to have, be crystal clear on what all of the supporting objectives are. As you move forward, you have to say, okay, what constitutes success? What is my desired end state for this objective? What effects do I want to have? What is, you know, maybe I don't knock it out of the park, but what is maybe a secondary benefit? For example, I work with a lot of salespeople and it's like, okay, ultimately you go and you have a conversation with somebody and you want them to buy your product or your offering or your, whatever that is, your service. Maybe you don't get that, but you've maybe sharpened or developed that relationship. Okay, for me, maybe I do, a, I, I reach out to somebody, we talk about a speaking gig and they're like, you know what, I already have my speaker for this year, but next year, you know, let's talk. And so it's a matter of like, hey, what can I do to optimize this? But I have to be very clear on what that looks like, because as I'm building to that, I need to know along my, my waypoints, you know, am I doing things that are in support of that or are they actually taking me in the opposite direction? And I think what I'm getting at is just be more methodical and analytical about the pathway and know exactly what that finish line looks like. 
Okay, so let's unpack that for a few minutes here. Um, I I am fine with people, you know, I have goals long-term that, you know, I want to do this, that, or the other. I found trying to measure things that I haven't done before to be extremely hard, right? So if I said, hey, I want to go out and buy a $600 million yacht. Okay, well, I can do the math on what it takes to earn to buy that and all that kind of stuff. But, but to understand the process of acquiring the wealth I've never done that before. So when you say clarity, maybe unpack a little bit of how far out someone reasonably can go. And then how often do these milestones and steps need to be? Well, you got to, I mean, you got to chunk that way down. Mm. Every goal that you have has to have all the supporting goals and objectives. For example, let's look at, let's look at professional sports. You know, I'm a, I'm a hockey player, right? Or I'm not, I'm a hockey fan. My son plays hockey. I never played hockey. Maybe I just feel like I have. But, uh, you know, you look at like professional hockey, you're like, all right, well, the goal always is to win the Stanley Cup. I mean, in most cases, if you're not doing a rebuild year, you're like, no, all right. Let's not talk about my Blackhawks. Let's not talk about my Blackhawks. It's a bad year. <laughs> <laughs> Bye, Patty. Bye, Patty, right? Um, but you're like, all right, well, before we, we need to make the playoffs. Okay, well, before we meet the playoffs, we need to be able to do this. We need to be able to win this game. Okay, so we need to win this game tonight. Okay, well, before we worry about winning the game tonight as the individual player, how much of that do I control? I don't control what the other team does. I don't control what get my teammates, what game they bring to the, you know, to, to the ice that night. I control my game. And, you know, more importantly, let me focus on each shift that I go out there. Let me focus on that game 60 seconds at a time, however long my shift is. Let me just focus on that piece. And so we got to chunk things way down. And it's like, all right, well, you know, we're talking about a $6 million yacht, right? What's my, what's the annual revenue? What do I want per quarter? We got to break it. Okay. So what are the habits that are going to enable me to do the things that lead to that success? And so you've just got, you've got to, you got to play it all out. Right. And you got to say, okay, well, like how big a goal do I want? It's always nice to have that overarching goal, right? I mean, you know, for me, I, you know, it's, whatever I go go have a house out west in the mountains somewhere right and I have that on my my vision board so to speak but that's in the background because that in that that should serve to motivate and inspire you but at the end of the day like you got to be way more specific and you got to figure out and it's like okay maybe I maybe it's not even about the money it's about engagements all right Mm -hmm. so I've got this many customer engagements so if I have this many customer engagements then that's going to lead to this potential revenue so yeah those are the things what do i control i control attitude effort skills and resources that i can bring about in marshall and so how do you think about keeping the forward momentum right so i was talking with a business partner of mine yesterday um and i was saying that this part we're talking about excites me the most and it wasn't actually the part that made money it was the the the, the sales call if you will we're, we're booking we, we get a client booked for a call and i said that excites me the most because I know if I get enough of those, we win. Like, I just know the math. Um, but for some people, it might be closing the sale. Some people might be getting the client, might be getting the first check. It, should that weigh into goal setting and keeping forward momentum? Or should we be disciplined enough that we say, you know what? We got to understand that there's other parts of this process and um, we got to grind through those as well. H- how do you balance that out? Yeah, and it's funny. And one of the things I talk about in the book is we, we naturally tend to focus on the things. And I would see this in the SEAL teams. Like the guys that are good at swimming, where do you think they spend their time? Swimming. They, they, they spend their time <laughs> in the pool. The guys that love to run, well, they spend their time. You're already good at that, but they keep, right? And they're like, well, what are you not good at? 
Why don't you spend more time doing that? So, and I found myself doing the same thing when I, you know, I had the, you know, probably the poor fortune of, of launching a public speaking business two months before COVID. So that was a whole nother thing, but I realized where I was spending my time. And a lot of it was, and a lot of it came from just being naive. I'm like, all I got to do is be really, really good at speaking and people will want to hire me because that's what I love to do. I love getting out on stage, connecting people and delivering my message. It's just what lights me up. Just like you said, a sales call is. All right, well, yeah, yeah, that's absolutely important. You're good at that, but that's such a small amount of what you actually need to do to be successful. And so it absolutely is important. And I think I would say almost critical to have those things that light you up, right? I, I don't say that motivation is not important. The things that we like to do, that's what motivates us. But, you know, motivation without the discipline, it just is meaningless because without discipline, we're not doing the things. We're not like, all right, you know, I want to do this, but you know, this is what I really got to do to move the, the needle this week, this month. So I need to invest my time in doing that because if I get to do that, then I get to go do the things that I want to. If I'm better at outreach, if I'm better, you know, with my marketing and my social media, that gains me more calls with the client, with the customers, which in turn will lead me to the other objectives of actually meeting my, you know, my, my, fa- my financial goals. One thing I found, and I'm curious how you guys in your business and um, when you're training people and talking to them and whatnot has come up is time management. And so I'm not a big believer for small businesses like myself or individual solopreneurs having a bunch of um, time management tools because you spend more time updating them than, than you do, do you do doing the work. However, what I have found is if I just take my calendar and I block That's such out- such a great point. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I, just, I, I just latched onto that. That's such a great point. Sorry to interrupt you. No, no. Uh, I'll just say that what I have found is if I just look at my calendar and I see the blanks and I fill in the blank with send email, look for podcast guests, write copy, whatever I got to do. Just, and I, and I do that, I found that the actual work, at least for what I do, is not a ton of time during my day, the the the, the tasks that I have to do to get stuff done, um, to keep the forward momentum going. There's a lot of time for that. But if I don't block that time off, I feel like I'm really busy and I'm not doing anything. I'm checking social media. I'm just scrolling on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter. I'm watching some YouTube. And at the end of the day, I'm like, man, what a day. And I look back at what I did, I'm like, I, I had like 40 things I didn't get done. And then I go, oh yeah, oh yeah. And so are you big on like really the time, not not the project manager stuff, sounds like we agree there, but the time blocking. You said earlier you do the four to five things. Do you block your whole day or how, how do you manage that? I don't block my whole day. Ultimately, I like to always build in flexibility just because inevitably it seems like I have to adapt and adjust most days, honestly. But what I do do is it's like my, if, I, if I rack and stack my critical tasks and projects, I will put them in a, time, in a time slot, right? And this also, I think, applies, or I don't think, I know it applies in terms of what the research says about our goal theory is that when you have a goal, it's like, hey, I'm going to do this, right? And we all, every, most people know what SMART goals are, right? Specific, measurable, attainable, attainable relevant to what you're trying to do and time-based. That's all well and good. 
but you actually have to assign a time, a date, a place to do that. Because when you actually give it that level of specificity, you are much more likely, and I don't remember exactly what the numbers are and percentages, but you're much more likely to actually attain and reach your goals when you really have that level of specificity. So, you know, that's a long-winded way of saying, yes, I do think that's important. I do do that. Not for everything, but for my most important tasks. Now you, now you mentioned you launched your coaching business in 2020 before right before the the world shut down. Walk me through the mental process of persevering through that and not going, you know what? I don't know when travel's coming back. I don't know when speaking engagements are coming back. Let me go do something else. Yeah, so I will set the I'll set the scenes here, right? So I didn't been doing some speaking before I retired, but you know, I didn't, as a, I didn't, I thought it would be a conflict of interest for me to have a website out while I was still in the military. And so I retired December, 2019, and then I launched my website and then I started getting traction. I had some stuff in January, February, and, and I was getting advanced checks in the mail. I don't really do that any as much anymore, but I found myself in the position, right? I just remember the first check that I had to kind of just tear in half and was like, I can't, cause I'm not going to execute the speech cause it's canceled. And I remember obviously feeling sorry for myself and feeling frustrated, you know, and there's that little bit of like blowing snot bubbles, kicking a soda can. And then you realize you're like, all right, a like that's child that, right. You know, I'll, I'll indulge that for like a minute or two, but let's look at the bigger picture. You know, and a lot of times it's not about the specifics of what I execute. If I look back and I zoom out and I detach, it's more about, okay, what's my greater overarching purpose well that is i have things that i think are important for the world to hear i have things that i believe in that can help people now the manner and method of what i want to disseminate that through that may change i may not be able to use that medium but let's find an alternate way because a lot of my friends that have been speakers professional speakers they were pretty they were able to really quickly pivot and adapt to kind of virtual and me i was like really scratching my head, being like, hey, I got to figure this out beyond this, the normal Zoom calls. But I started reaching out to clients and customers and I st- the prior clients and customers. I'm like, look, I just got to, I, I have to be of value to the world right now. So you don't need to pay me, but let me know if I can hop on a call and talk about this because this, a lot of the chaos, that's what military families had to do early on, right? Like late notice deployments, Right where the you know just that kind of stress and uncertainty and things that you have to deal with, military members and families were pretty adept at that. So here, let me know if I can be a value. So I started doing that. People took me up on that, uh, and that really was a way for me to just feel like I was adding value. It really kind of reinstilled that sense of purpose for what I do. And then, of course, the thing started coming back. Yeah, yeah, and it's good to hear that because I think non-military people like myself, definitely not SEALs. You know, you kind of project that SEALs aren't human, but but you're human. And so even though whatever you experience in your time in the military is the stakes are a lot higher, obviously, um, versus, oh, man, a few business deals fell apart. You still had to go through that process that we all go through, which is a little bit of doubt, a little bit of frustration, and then power through that. And, and so it's kind of it's always a good reminder for the rest of us out there that that everyone struggles with these things. But it's that it's that ability to get that forward momentum going again. Mm-hmm. And that's right. And I would say, you know, one other thing that wasn't easy for me either was, I mean, and you'll find this a lot, like even for people that hit the ground running, it's difficult. 
Like you spent 27 years in the military as I did. And all of a sudden it's like, boom, now like it's completely different. You don't have that anymore. You don't have that kind of purpose given to you all the time. You're not competing. You're not always sharpening a skill, at least in special operations. You're always competing. You're always developing a skill set, always trying to get better, trying to refine process improvement. And all of a sudden you're without that. And you're kind of, you know, and you're without the kind of the, 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 the brotherhood, as we would say, you feel a little bit lost. And so I had that going on as well. And I think it's like all of us, regardless of whether you serve, can find yourself in situations like that. Maybe you get laid off or you're, you're switching a career just because you want to mix things up. And then you'll find yourself a little bit lost at times. And it's just like you said, you got to say, all right, you know, at the end of the day, I have no choice but to move forward. How do I do that? Yeah, and I think that one of the frustrations, and I see in the business world is, is I'm all for people getting a side hustle because right now inflation, and there's things that you could do to help boost your income. So I'm all good there, but we've we've oversold, I think, the entrepreneurial um, mindset. And what I mean by that is, you know, if you're 18, 19, 20, 25, you know, to be an entrepreneur, to take that risk, to understand that, you might have a, a better shot. Um, Whereas if you're 45, 50, and you've been in a corporation for a long time, the the switch there is a lot different and understanding the mentality into what you just hit on. You don't wake up every day with 16 middle managers telling you what to do. Bosses calling you, you got to show up. It's do what you want to do, which is everything or nothing. And how do you get brilliant at the basics or how do you keep going or how do you perform? You know, well, there's no one to really push you forward. And so I think that's something that I don't know how you communicate that message to people, but it's something that people need to probably think about more, which is how much self-discipline do they have? And even some like yourself who had been extremely self-disciplined by being in the SEALs coming out, you still have to overcome that, that lack of oversight. You do. And, and here's the thing people don't realize is the, you know, we hear the word peer pressure, right? When you're back in school, you're back in high school and that's such a bad, like, right. It's like, Oh, don't give into peer pressure stay off drugs, stay in school, all that stuff you hear, right? But really, peer pressure is a significant part of our culture in the SEAL teams. Because when you have to go do something dangerous that you're not comfortable with, you may have to go through a door where somebody might shoot you and kill you. It's peer pressure that drives a lot of that. Right now, we want to go out, we're type A, we're meat eaters, right? We want to go out there and do that. But Really, you know, your fear, what drives you is the fear of letting your teammates down and the fear of the damage you'll sustain to your reputation. And that's what makes you do things that are scary. And so you often like that's another thing that you don't have. You don't have that person in an office with you, maybe. Let's say it's like a group of like four or five entrepreneurs sitting in one office and you're all like, what are you doing? How, how come? Oh, you suck today. You didn't get it done. Right. So. It's, that's exactly right. You're missing that, right? That's a huge element. It's not just like every every person in the military, every high-performing special operations soldier is not cut out to do this, right? Is not cut out to just do things on their own. They need to be part of that team or they won't succeed in many cases. And I'll, I'll tell you this right now, and I'll confess this, and, and I don't really ever talk about this, but I mean, there were times where, like, I believed in my message and things like that. But, you know, at the end of the day, I love doing what I do. If I didn't, I wouldn't still be doing this. I'll tell you right now, 
I wouldn't be an entrepreneur right now if I didn't love what I do. That's the only reason I'm still doing it. And I love the things that come with that, right? For all the things that we talked about being a negative in terms of the discipline and the failure that you face, it sure is nice. Also, hey, I got no boss telling me what to do right now besides my wife. I got no boss and I get to answer only to myself. There is that. But at the end of the day, you know, I think I'm able to do what I love. But if not, you know, maybe being an entrepreneur isn't for me. So you were in 27 years, right? That's right. 27 years. Um, just out of ignorance, is that a how is that on the far end of length of time people be in that long for the SEAL stuff? Yeah. Or okay, that's what I, what I figured. That's What's longer average, than average. Average is what four to six? Or do they double up? I honestly, I honestly, if you say just in the SEAL teams, I I honestly don't know. Okay. I would say maybe that sounds about right. Uh you can they they kind of changed the way the retirement system works now. But it used to be when I was in, when I was grandfathered in when I left, but it was, you got to do 20 years to get a pension unless you're medically retired due to injury, uh, short of that. And so I did, you know, 20 years, I could have retired. I stayed an extra seven. I would say, you know, if you're going to stay upwards, if you're looking at eight years and you're looking at approaching that halfway mark, I would say most people at that point will say, hey, I've done it this long. I'll elect to go do the 20. And then people that do it as long as I did, like you have to, um, for tw- to stay past like 25, you have to, you have to keep getting promoted or they don't let you stay. And so I was able to make that final pay grade. I could have stayed till 30. If I decided I was going to work for, if I got a job working for a general or an admiral, I could have stayed past 30. Okay. Well, the reason I'm asking that is, is it in the, normal civilian world burnout opportunities change what is it from your perspective that you've seen in in this type of environment which it's very rigid the stakes are high but there's a ton of adrenaline rush as well um there's strange what is it that keeps someone like yourself going and what is it that keeps someone saying you know what four six eight years i've had enough and do any of those lessons are they converted to um the work the workforce outside of military Yeah, you know, that's a tough one because there's so many things, there's so many dynamics that go into that, right? And it's even within the SEAL teams, not everybody's experience is the same, right? Not everybody's family dynamics are the same. Maybe you have, you know, the divorce rate is extremely high. And so many people do find themselves, it's either this career or it's my marriage and my family. And so they'll pick that, you know, they'll pick the family piece and they'll, they'll get off the, they'll get off the train at the next stop. Uh, for me, all I can say is for me, it was like, I, I went through SEAL training and I was like, man, these are the people that I want to spend a lot of time with. But I was like, I'm never going to, st- I'm not making this a career. I'm going to do this is before 9-11, right? So there's no, it's like, I'm just going to stay here for a, for a few years and then I'll get out. And I kept being like, man, this is, this is fun. And before I think 9-11 happened before I even, no, I made 2000, I re-enlisted. So I made the decision to stay on extra because I was still having fun. And that was kind of my mantra throughout my career is I'm going to keep doing this while I'm having fun. And there were lots of times where I'm like, you know what? I think I might get out now. And I fortunately had an uncle that was like, no, you need to, you've done this. You've done like 10 years. You need to do another 10 years. You're going to want to retire. And he was so, he was so right. But I think it's different for everyone. I stayed a few years past when it was being fun, um, quite frankly, but yeah. I'm glad that I did, and I don't have any big regrets. Okay, so you have the new book coming out uh, this point. I don't have my 
scheduled in front of me. The book will be out either right before, right after this podcast comes out. So it's close. It comes out on the seventh. We're recording this on the second. So I don't have my, I think you're coming out Monday, but yeah, it'd, it'd be close. But my, my question to you um, is as you've done the speaking, you've left, what's the biggest thing that you've seen in the civilian world that people could improve upon that would make the most difference for them? You know, I think that's a lot of what I wanted to take from my time in the SEAL teams. It's like really how we plan, prepare, execute, right, when it's hard, when the stakes are high. Now, that whole thing, I tell extreme stories about combat and things like that. It's, of course, a lot of it's some of its entertainment value, right? And, and it's there's extreme examples of that. But at the end of the day, if you look at, hey, there's things in your life that are important like the whole example of life on the X, the X refers to in the military, it's a doctrine term, but it's almost like literally X marks a spot. If we are landing on a target, if we fast drop out of a helicopter onto the rooftop of a target building, we refer to that as landing on the X. We also use it in a slightly different context. If we're like, say, patrolling down the street in an urban setting and we get ambushed by the enemy, where that all that fire is being directed, that kill zone, that's the X. In that case, we got to get off that X. But that X that I try to articulate exists for everyone in some way, shape, or form. Whether it's you got a pitch, a presentation, a, a client, customer engagement. Maybe it's you driving home and you got to confront your kid about something that they did in high school that you heard about. And you got to be in my whole thing is just like in the SEAL teams, you marshal resources, you develop skills, you gain knowledge, okay? Be deliberate, be intentional with how you show up for moments that matter. And not all of them are, are huge defining moments or key opportunities. Others are simply important moments where you want to be effectively leading in your, in your home. You want to effectively lead in front of your friends. You want to show up big when it matters. So just take a beat, look at where you want to go and how you want to show up in those moments, and then ask yourself, what do you have to align to set the table for your success in those moments? And that's what I'm trying to, I'm trying to get people to look at what are important moments. What are their X's in their life and what do they need to do to truly be ready for those moments? Okay, great. We are going to link to the book, which again comes out on March 7th, which should be a day or two after this podcast is released. But of course you can um, pre-order it on Amazon as I'm looking at it right now. Um, also your website, we're going to link to there. As you mentioned, you do, um, speaking and stuff like that. So we'll link to that anywhere else you want us to send people to. Yeah. You know, one other thing that I didn't mention that I just started working on, we were just finishing up a beta of this app for men's mental health called mental. And it's available wherever, you know, to download, to get the app. And it's some really cool stuff. It takes a lot of the content that I do, that I teach, like performance psychology, mindfulness, character stuff, and it does it. My piece is actually under a cold shower routine, believe it or not. I know it sounds crazy, but yeah, give it a give it a look. Give it it's 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 it addresses the very serious nature of men's mental health, but we do so in a way where we add humor and we add uh, an element of fun to it. So mental. I've taken, I've taken some of them cold baths, and I will say this: I don't know. I have no idea about the side effects of the health. I tell people there is something to knowing that you're going to step into that ice cold water and then doing it. I don't know if it helps you anywhere else, but just that, just doing that. And then when you're, you know, it's throughout the day and it's like, Oh, I don't want to do this. You're like, I'm the kind of person that gets in a cold bath. I'm crazy enough to actually do what I got to do. 
Well, that's right. I mean, like you said, physiologically, there's a whole set of things, especially, you know, and they may vary depending on whether it's a cold plunge or a cold shower, but, you know, the physiological responses that you have in terms of like there, there, there can be uh, things to, to enhance your hormone levels, but dopamine is the big one. If you're feeling depressed, if you're feeling tired, if you want to get up, take a cold shower, at least a minute or two, and you're going to find your endorphins are going to be up and they're going to be actually extended for, for quite a few hours. And so that's one of the big ones. But the reason we do it is because it's a very uh, intentional way that we can inject stress. And so if you train under stress, then you can perform under stress. So that's the whole premise of that. Okay, Stephen, thank you so much for your time today and best of luck on the new book. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Hey, you made it to the end of this episode. Thank you so much. Now, I'm going to ask a favor. If you enjoyed it, would you drop a five-star somewhere? And if you really enjoyed it, would you consider becoming a subscribing member over at warroommedia.com? Helps keep the show going and ad-free. Thank you so much.